Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey there, musicians and music lovers. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Musicians Venture Podcast. I am your host, Nick O'Brien. I'm excited to have you here for a conversation with flutist Emmy Ferguson, a very accomplished English-American performer, composer, and music engagement professional. She's hailed by critics for her tonal bloom and hauntingly beautiful performances as her music stretches the boundaries of what is expected from modern-day artists. Emmy's unique approach to the flute can be heard in performances that alternate between many different kinds of flutes with a playing repertoire that stretches from the Renaissance to today. Emmy can often be found dreaming up programs that collide various musical disciplines, composers, and that feature her as a flute player, singer, arranger, and composer. She was the only flutist accepted to the Juilliard School's inaugural historical performance class and was the first person to have graduated with undergraduate and graduate degrees with scholastic distinction in flute performance, as well as a second graduate degree in historical performance. Emmy can be heard live in concerts and festivals around the world. She has spoken and performed at several TEDx events and has been featured on media outlets including the Discovery Channel, Vox's Explained series on Netflix, Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and Juilliard's digital touch press apps. Her debut album in 2017 spent four weeks on the classical, classical crossover, and world music billboard charts. Her 2019 album, which you'll hear a song from at the end of this episode, debuted at number one on the iTunes classical charts and number two on the billboard classical charts and was called Blindingly Impressive, a fizzing, daring display of personality and imagination by the New York Times. Emmy was a featured performer alongside Yo-Yo Ma, Paul Simon, and James Taylor at the 10th anniversary memorial ceremony of 9-11 at Ground Zero, where her performance of Amazing Grace was televised worldwide. Her performance that day is now part of the permanent collection at the 9-11 Museum. Emmy is taught at the Juilliard School and the University of Buffalo, and in 2022, Emmy released a podcast series she co-developed called This Composer is Sick which explored the impact of syphilis on composers. Most recently, Emmy has released a new book, and you'll hear much more about that in this episode. Over the course of the conversation, Emmy and I talk about her schedule right now playing flute all over the country while also having the release of her book and winding down her time teaching at the Juilliard School in New York City. She explains her path to making music, which started as a child and then led her to learning to play the flute at only six years old, which opened up her mind to the power of music. She talks about her childhood experience of being born in Japan and then living in England until she was 10 years old when her family moved to the United States. She reflects on the experience of how going to Juilliard and only focusing on music led to her missing the opportunity to learn about other topics, which led her to studying epidemiology at Columbia and then to doing work in the medical field which incidentally caused her to miss playing the flute 
and prompted her to refocus on music with an emphasis on demystifying classical music by inviting people into the genre in organic and engaging ways. She talks about her work in helping people understand and celebrate the intricacies of classical music, from the history of the genre to the ways in which we interpret it and everything in between. And a lot of that has gone into her new book called Iconic Composers, which covers the lives and careers of 50 composers from as long ago as the 11th century and spanning to present day. And it's meant to be consumable by all people, no matter their level of knowledge about music. She talks about one of the composers in the book she's researched and she's worked with, and who is coincidentally in Wisconsin, and she shares her perspective on the importance of studying living composers. She expresses gratitude for the team she got to work with for the book and how the project came together. She talks about the challenge of not only narrowing down the list of composers to put into the book, but also how to fit the lives and careers and so many insights about their music into only 250 words for each composer. She reflects on the experience of co-writing the book with her husband, Nicholas Sisko, who she met while at Juilliard and has become well-known for his writing and lectures about the intersection of music and finance. We talk about an insight that came from her research about the accessibility of music and music makers today in comparison to the earliest days of the music industry and how today's accessibility of music could negatively impact society's appreciation of the art form. As difficult as it is to do, Emmy articulates what music means to her and what she thinks it means to the world. We zoom in on her experience performing at the 10th anniversary memorial ceremony for 9-11. She reflects on the emotions involved in that performance and expresses her gratitude for getting to be a part of the memorial. We talk about her music and the song you're going to hear after the interview, which gives Emmy an opportunity to educate me, and maybe you too, on the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. She defines what a successful music career means to her and shares what's on the horizon for her work. She also shares that no matter where her interests and focus takes her work in the music industry, she can guarantee that what she produces will be interesting. And our conversation ends with her talking about a project she's worked on that's brought her to Wisconsin several times and how that project has led her to develop an appreciation for the state and the people who live here. This was an enlightening conversation with a very accomplished artist who has had all kinds of different experiences that has led to a very insightful perspective. So I hope that you can enjoy this conversation with Emmy Ferguson as much as I enjoyed having it with her. Hello, Emmy. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. You are in New York currently. What is late June, early July like in New York right now? Oh, it's usually one of the most beautiful times of the year where, you know, all the flowers are blooming wonderfully and you've got these gorgeous, you know, clear, sunny skies. But right now we are suffering like a lot of the country with some of this hazy smog from the Canada fires up north. So I wish I could tell you that we were having that sort of quintessential New York summer, but it's a, it's a, little, it's a little crazy out there right now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in Milwaukee and there was some news that came out earlier this week. Milwaukee had the worst air quality in the world at, at that time. Yeah. It's gotten better, but it's also Summerfest time in Milwaukee. I don't know if you know oh, about Oh, nice. 
and it's right there on the lake where all that kind of smog like is really dense so it is kind of a negative influence on Milwaukee summer as well unfortunately but hopefully it will clear up soon so you have so much to talk about your career is accomplished and colored and you're working on a book where is it out yet it's coming out soon it's out it came out on june 13th so just came out a few weeks ago it's brand new to me (laughs) that's awesome well congratulations on that thank you obviously with you putting out a book right now is that kind of your main focus right now is is on the book or what is life like right now for amy ferguson Well, what I spend most of my time doing is playing the flute. So I travel to a lot of different places and play concerts. And so summertime is is quite a busy time going to many different music festivals around the country. When the book came out, I was in Ojai, California at the Ojai Music Festival. And the next week I flew to Portland, Maine, where I was at Bach Festival out there. It's really fun and exciting. That's kind of like my main focus. And to also have this book now to share with audiences wherever I go and also online is is really exciting. It's called Iconic Composers and features 50 composers from the past 1,000 years of the Western classical tradition. And so there's always something to talk about with that, no matter what concert I'm playing, because whether there's a composer in the book that's on the program Or just talking about composers in general, it's sort of a great conversation starter I'm finding in the past few weeks. Yeah, that's super cool. And I also see that you're on faculty at the Juilliard School. You know, I've taught at Juilliard for quite a while, actually, since I was a student there. And I am winding down my teaching hours there because my performance schedule and travel schedule has gotten to be wonderfully busy and incredibly happy. And it means that sort of finding that time to make sure I'm present for my students there has become harder. So I taught ear training there, which is sort of solfege and musical skills for a very long time. And I love that so much. But sadly, I I won't be teaching in the fall for the first time in, oh my gosh, like 15 years. It's It's a little crazy. So I will miss it dearly, but excited for someone else to take the reins there. Yeah, well, not a bad position to be in when there's so many things that you love to do and that people want you to do, and you just can't do them all, right? I'm sure that's got to be tough to kind of make that decision and to step away from something like that that's been such a big part of your life for so long. Yeah, no, it was very difficult. But the wonderful thing is that I get to talk about a lot of the things that I taught sort of in my performances and you know, with this book as well, a lot of what I was teaching was sort of general music understanding, music appreciation, how to think critically when you're looking at music and ask interesting questions of yourself and of your audiences. And so it's been really fun to explore that with this writing. So I'm finding other outlets for that same kind of engagement with music. That's really cool. And I'm so excited to dive into the makings of the book and how that all came to be. But let's start with your music career. You have been a musician for most of life, I assume. Yeah. Uh, when did this all start and how did it start? Did you grow up in a, a musical family? What were the inspirations and the influences to kind of draw you into making music? Yeah, absolutely. My family is not a musical one, but I think both of my parents wished that they had had some exposure to musical training as kids. And I'm the first of four kids. And so they noticed that I love to sing. They may say that I love to scream as a baby, (laughs) as a child. But they sort of took me to some kids' music classes and noticed that I really enjoyed it. And so when I was three, 
I learned to play the recorder and, you know, like a lot of folks. And then at four, I started piano lessons. But it was when I started the flute at six that things really stuck. And I've been playing the flute ever since. But that was sort of my early start was really with the flute at six years old. How did it snowball from there? When you started playing the flute, was it, you know, love at first sight and, and it just kind of snowballed from there? Or was it a gradual process? I think it's always a gradual process because, you know, with any instrument, there's the excitement about getting to play this instrument. There's the excitement about getting to play the music. And then there's the challenge of learning the skills to be able to share the sounds and the pieces that you want with your family, your friends, audiences. So, you know, when you start very, very young, you forget a lot of that time that is actually really, really, really hard. And because you're so little and you're focused on lots of other things, it just becomes sort of one more fun thing that you get to do. And it's not this, you know, huge challenge that I think some of us have a, a much harder time when we come to something later in life. And I've worked with a lot of adult musical students, and I always have to remind them that it's not going to happen in a year. And that's okay. It's about enjoying that journey. And little kids, you know, they're not focused on how long it's taking in the same way that we often do as adults. So for me, I think it just became part of these fun activities that I got to do. And I think I really loved the attention that I got performing as well. As one of four kids, it was like, oh, this is the time that I can I can get someone's attention. So I love that aspect and really love the social aspect of it as well, because you've got to meet so many different people. I got to travel to different places to play concerts as well as to go for lessons or festivals. So music is just such an amazing meeting grounds for so many different people of different walks of life. And I just I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have a somewhat unique childhood experience, I'm assuming. You're born in Japan. You were raised in London. Can you help kind of like timeline this out for me in terms of like where you were yeah. <laughs> when flute started to become the fun thing that you were giving your attention to? Absolutely. So I was born in Japan and my parents had been living there for about a decade. My father grew up in Australia. My mother grew up in England and my father had moved to Japan when he was in high school. He learned the language in Australia because it was the closest economy at the time. So they taught it in school and fell in love with being there, went back to England for university and met my mother shortly thereafter. And then they moved to Japan and I popped out two years before they left. So I was only there for two years, which is very sad, but I have a love for all things Japanese food. So if anyone ever wants to take me out for Japanese food, I will always be willing and welcome. <laughs> Japanese also has some really great music. Incredible music. And as a flute player, especially, I'm like spoiled with all of the incredible flute music and different kinds of flutes that they have in Japan. So I've always taken a lot of inspiration from that. But, you know, moved back to England when I was two and lived there until I was 10 when we moved to the States. And then, you know, the U.S. became home after that. And I'm still here and, and love it. But it's very fun to sort of be a citizen of the world and have gotten to live in different places, different cultures, and meet lots of different people. So. Yeah, and I imagine having kind of like a through line through all these experiences of with your focus being on music kind of gives you even a more microscopic view of how your thing in life, music, 
incorporates with other cultures and other geographic locations, which I'm sure has a lot to do with what was inspired that became your book. When did flute become like, okay, this is the thing that I'm going to do with my life? I think that's a question every day that many, <laughs> many professional musicians ask themselves like, oh my goodness, is this what I'm doing? Cool. Like, wow, what a privilege to be able to play a flute. I mean, it's really, truly a privilege. And every day I sort of pinch myself and ask myself, actually, is this what I'm doing? Amazing. <laughs> but I think for me, you know, it was actually later than a lot of folks. I mean, I was playing a lot in high school, but I went to a purely academic high school that had no music program and then went to Juilliard for my undergrad, where it was the exact opposite. It was, you know, music full throttle, full time. And I missed having exposure to other topics and sort of the academic background that I'd had, and which I never thought I would miss. But I, I really did and ended up registering and, and taking classes at Columbia's Graduate School for Epidemiology, their public health school, and falling in love with looking at disease and how it spreads and how we can use education to combat, you know, as, as prevention. That was really exciting for me that kind of like fed a different part of my brain. And I ended up Instead of going to music festivals in the summer, I interned at Mount Sinai Hospital working on a couple of projects that were focused on hepatitis C and diabetes in New York City and loved it. But I think it's my junior summer. I hadn't played the flute all summer and I think I was getting ready for something at school and I thought, okay, I'm going to finish my undergrad and go to medical school and, you know, go in that direction. But I was practicing and I like I missed playing scales and there was this like funny thing in my head where I was like oh if I missed playing scales and I'm really enjoying you know, like going to the gym I think I like this and it was a turning point for me because it was sort of when I was able to figure out that I could find those moments for my curiosity to dig deep and like go into very deep rabbit holes in different areas of the music world that I hadn't sort of found up until that point. And then once I sort of turned that on, it was like, okay, there's no going back. Music is a part of my life forever, but most importantly, figuring out ways to share why the music that I play or I love is exciting and special with audiences and trying to break things down so that, you know, we demystify all of this because classical music can so often for audiences feel very like put on a pedestal. And it was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, my whole focus is to sort of try and strip away all of these things that have been put on it and say, what is this about? Well, it's just about like sharing in our humanity and being present in community and how do we do that through this music, some of which was composed hundreds of years ago, and some of it which is composed, you know, yesterday. And I love that. And so how was that focus or the draw to that focus received among your peers and your <laughs> teachers? Like, I don't know how common that is, honestly, in, in the classical genre. And, and when you kind of drew in on that, was that when things started to come together from like the career aspect? I can't say that it all happened at once because while, you know, in retrospect, yes, that's when I had that epiphany or whatever. But I think it's actually that it starts to filter in in different ways slowly and over time and then just becomes part of your ethos. Um, yeah. And I think that's really how it happened for me because 
So much of being a young professional, either when you're finishing up school or still in school, is you're also going through, you know, the pathways that the institutions have set up for you. You've got to, you know, play the recitals you have to and take the classes you've got to, you know, you have to jump through the hoops that are set up. But it became for me more about figuring out how to jump through those hoops in the way that I felt really good about. And so it absolutely affected sort of the choices that I made in terms of the types of performances, the types of instruments I was interested in, and the types of projects that I pursued. And it's only sort of grown more and more in that way because I love getting to pursue interesting, fun stuff to me. And that means that it always has to have some element of like, why are we doing this? Why is this interesting Like it can be interesting to me. And that's a really important starting point. If I'm not passionate and interested about it, there's no reason why anyone else should be. (laughs) So that's always like the driving factor of anything. But then second is like, how do I convey that excitement and that passion? And how can I do that in a way that invites people in, in as organic of a way as possible? Oh, I mean, I love that. Well, (laughs) I mean, you're articulating so much of what I haven't been able to in terms of the way that I perceive music's impact on the world and on individuals and on myself, you know, on everyone. And it's clear that you've given a lot more thought to that than a lot of people. And I think it's admirable. And I'm super intrigued by it, too. How has that come to be? And you said it's kind of been this gradual process where it's just been kind of slowly integrating with just your ethos And so at what point did you say, okay, I've got enough here to like go and talk on a TED stage or write a book? And when did delivering this in a kind of more career-oriented way, this focus, when did that start to come together? And then when did you start to get kind of like noticed for being a thought leader when it comes to that aspect of the music world? I think a huge part of that actually owe a huge debt to my teaching and to my students. When I was teaching, I worked with college students, I worked with high school students, but my main focus was working with adults who are coming to music for the first time or sort of reintroducing themselves to music. And that was so important to me in figuring out why, like the why questions that they asked were fantastic. And their why questions, like we were saying before, that you don't ask as a kid because you just kind of do. It's like, why is this a major scale? Like, well, it just is, you know, play these notes, move these fingers, you know, or like, why does the note do this? Well, you don't have a concept of how physics works yet, so we can't really explain it in this way. But with adults, it's so fun because you have to figure out the ways and I have to figure out the ways of how to explain these things that were just kind of ingrained in my body and my brain from being a kid playing music. When you come to it for the first time, it was really hard, but it was such a gift to have those opportunities to figure out the nitty gritty of like all these reasons why we do these things this way, why we write music that way how you can break the rules, what the rules are, why they were put in place and who in history has broken them. And like, how cool is that? Like, I love looking into all of that. So I would say that for me, it really started there because I was always trying to figure out ways how to make sure that they could understand the concepts in a way that really stuck with them. And then that kind of infiltrated all of my thinking in terms of how do we make this music really sticky? 
it's always about being sticky, right? And that can be interpreted in many ways, like could be enjoyment, could be engagement. It's just for me, that was, I think, the thing that was the seed for all of it. I asked this question earlier about how your peers responded to your being drawn to that focus. How has the world responded to you teaching and, and, and asking why and explaining all of these intricate factors that are involved in, in how we experience music, both as consumers and creators? I think the classical music world in general has sort of been having a self-reckoning for a while, I would say. But certainly within the past 10 years, certainly within the past five and, and within the past three, hugely so. And so I think that everybody's got this on their mind about, you know, how do we make the things that we love about this music relevant and fascinating for new audiences who maybe felt that they were excluded from partaking in classical music, whether as performers or audience members. And as we said before, because so much of the classical music ecosystem was really put out of reach for a lot of people for a very long time. And sort of breaking down what classical music means and the fact that like we have this catch-all phrase, classical music, for, you know, pretty much a lot of different genres. I mean, we could go thousands of years, many different genres, many different kinds of music. So for me, it's always like, how do we make sure people know that like, yeah, it's, it's not all just this one thing of like people in wigs and, you know, exclusionary, exclusionary. Like it's, it's just, uh, we want to try to celebrate all of the different voices that have contributed to this incredible legacy of music that we now have to share in together. And that's a huge part of sort of what was really exciting to me about this book, Iconic Composers, was just celebrating all of these amazing music makers who have very different life experiences, very different kinds of music, but that are all like considered classical composers. Even though if you maybe played this music to people, they might be shocked to hear that. Sure. Yeah. I am always interested just like I explained to you before we started recording the, the interview, you know, just the human interest aspect of the creative journey. And so if you wouldn't mind, are there a couple of composers that you studied and researched that really stand out to you in terms of just being interesting or potentially overlooked or underknown that you kind of want to tease here to give people a taste of what to expect in the book? Oh, sure. Well, you know, the book is a mixture of folks you might know as well as folks you might not know. And it's been so fun to see who knows whom. Some of the people that I was introduced to later in my career, other people like, oh, I've been listening to that person since I was a baby. They're my favorite and vice versa, which is really exciting. And I would first and foremost draw everybody's attention to our living composers. That to me is so important because we have incredible living composers today and there's more every day. And that's like one of my huge hope from this book is that we continue, you know, to inspire people to go out and write music. Now, you know, this book covers a thousand years. So there's just a handful of folks who are living today. But someone that I work with a lot who is from your area, from Madison, actually, is Roscoe Mitchell. He is an incredible composer multi-instrumentalist, 
artist. He does so many incredible things. And he came up in the Chicago scene and was part of the AACM, the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, and was also hugely influential, started the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And it's just amazing. And so he is someone who's been working, I think he's 80 right now. And I emailed him, like cold emailed him a few years ago because I was reading a book all about the AACM written by another composer, George Lewis. And I was just wanting to listen to as many pieces of music by the people I was reading about as possible. And I googled Roscoe Mitchell and the first picture that came up was him with a Baroque flute. Now, what I do a lot of the times, I play Baroque music on instruments from the 1700s, from that time period. And it's a pretty niche thing, I'll say. Um, <laughs> I would imagine, but, yeah. you know, I don't know any composers who play the Baroque flute. So when I saw this, I was like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. What is this guy doing with a Baroque flute? I know he's a saxophone player, but this is like, I found my unicorn. And I reached out to him and I just said, hey, I also play the Baroque flute. And like, I love what you're doing. I'd love to work with you if I can commission you to write a piece of music. I don't know where or with whom, but I just, I'm super excited about this wonderful coincidence. And he wrote back like immediately. It was like, yes, I'd love to. This would be so fantastic. You know, I've always wanted to work more with these early instruments. And so over the past few years, it's just been such a blast to get to work with him and understand his life, his ethos, what he's excited about, and to be in the room with him creating his music. It's really, really exciting. So he's one of our living composers in the book, as well as quite a handful of others that I want to draw everybody's attention to first and foremost. But other than that, what I love about this book is I think it's the something that you can turn any page to. And whether you know the person or you don't know the person, they're fun stories. They're all 250 words, really short and aimed at music lovers of all ages, you know, from someone who's 12 years old to someone who's 80 years old. Hopefully you get a really lovely picture of who these people were, like what their personalities were, what they cared about, what their values were, and what inspired them. Really the human aspect of these people that we often forget that they were just people trying to figure out their lives in the same way we're trying to figure out our lives now. And that's why working with living composers, I think, is so important just to give that perspective when we're looking back in history. That was a really long story. Sorry. <laughs> no, it was a great story. I would listen to any story you told me, honestly, because it's very interesting. So what was this process like of writing the book? And like the research that went into it, and I'm sure you worked, you know, hand in hand with team members, explain to me that process. And, and also, if there are any similarities or really distinct differences that you ran into in comparison to, you know, putting together an album or something like that, another form of media that you're putting out into the world. I'm just curious when a creative who is very focused on one particular medium steps into a different one. I'm always curious about how that experience translates or or doesn't or conflicts. So yeah, feel free to just tell me about the book process and, and what that experience was like for you. Well, it's really great to have such a fantastic team of people working on this. This is a brainchild baby and part of a series of books that our publisher, Trope, publishing out of Chicago, 
and the artist David Lee Sisko have been putting together. And this is the third out of, I think, four books that are currently scheduled. The first one that they did together was LGBTQ plus icons. The second was science people. And this is the third. And I think the fourth will be fashion icons that comes out. So the third book in the series, Iconic Composers, and David is somebody that I've known for quite a while through his cousin, Nicholas Sisko, who is my co-writer. And Nick and I met at Juilliard, and we actually met in an ear training class, and we both ended up going to teach that class later. And we loved that. And so I think it's that same excitement and interest that drew both of us to teaching and to talking about music and, you know, breaking down these barriers about, you know, what's going on. And Nick was studying composition in Juilliard. I was studying music and he's since pivoted to work in the finance world. So he gets to sort of explain different things now in different ways, but has this incredible music background. And so David reached out to Nick and Nick brought me in on this project to bring these people to life together. So that was really exciting to work with these people that I've known for quite a bit and to really think about you know, how to share these stories of these people with the world. And as you said, it's very hard. I am not a writer. I am, uh, I never thought I would be a writer. I guess I am a writer now. And that's how it happens, isn't it? <laughs> like all of, and when one day I became this, but it was a very big challenge for all of us to first choose 50 composers. You know, we had some wonderful disagreements. <laughs> You know, where, where, you know, we're just trying to put together, not necessarily our favorite composers. It's, it's a selection of composers that taken together, give you a beautiful picture of what is possible. And that's what was really important to us. You know, some of the composers that I play the most or have a very, very deep connection to aren't in this book. And that's okay, because, you know, this is just a beginning. And that's what was really important to all of us is that this is not a definitive list. This is not a best of list. This is not a top list. This is a starting list. And our hope is that people use this and get excited about any one of these 50 composers and it allows them to engage with music in a different way and find out about the next 50 composers and the next and the next. Because as I said, you know, if we encourage people to write music, we're always going to have more composers to be excited about. So that was the first challenge. It was hard, but I'm really, really happy and proud with the group of composers that we have in the book. And then the second challenge was trying to boil down each of these people's lives to 250 words. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, what a wonderful journey first to do all of the research. I mean, so many of these people that I really know about from playing their music or studying them in school, but to now go back and really dig into different aspects of their life and find things about them that will be exciting and interesting to anybody that's not just a list of music that they've written or their accomplishments or, you know, descriptions of their music, which is really, really hard to put into words, but really descriptions of their character. So to find those firsthand sources of funny stories about them or things that they love to eat things that we don't really think of usually when describing like Johann Sebastian Bach. But I love to share that, you know, he was often found down at the local coffee house drinking beer and coffee into the night with his friends. Like that to me is, it gives me so much more perspective when I play his music because 
I know this is someone who really cared about sharing. And that completely transforms my mentality when I go into it. So it was really fun to get to do all this research on these people and then say, okay, how do we boil this down into 250 words so that other people, even if they've never heard of this person, get excited and want to hear their music and want to learn more about them? Yeah. Well, I'm super interested to hear even just a little bit that you shared of what you learned about Bach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't consume a lot of classical music. When I do, it's because I'm either working. Right. Or I, actually, I listen to classical music a lot when I'm running as well. Oh. Yeah, it's very calming, very meditative. Love it. But one of the first kinds of music that I remember being drawn to as a child was the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Hmm. I don't know why. And just hearing the little stories you shared about him then and about his desire for sharing, I'm like, huh, maybe that's something subconsciously I knew that as a child because I really connect with people who love to share, you know? So it's interesting. It makes me very intrigued and excited to, to dive into this book and to learn more about the people who produce the music that I've listened to in some really wonderful moments in my life. I've had amazing moments on runs while listening to classical music. And to be able to connect with the people who produce that music, that's so interesting to me. So you told a little bit of a story about how you and Nick came together and that you mm -hmm. co-wrote this book. If I'm not mistaken, you and Nick are also married, correct? We are, yes. Yes. So we spend a lot of time talking about music. <laughs> how was the process? I mean, just any sort of creative pursuit with a significant other can be heavenly or nightmarish or a little bit of both at times, I'm sure. How was that? Yeah, no, I think it was a little bit of both. <laughs> no, no, I, it was actually really fun because we haven't collaborated on a project like this before. And we both love talking about music and the things that we ended up focusing on more recently in terms of music engagement and appreciation have been more tailored to our specific interest. So I last year did a little podcast miniseries on the how syphilis impacted composers of the past. And that combined with all of my public health and epidemiology interests with my love for music history and like looking at composers. Whereas Nick's focus has been looking at the intersection of economics and the impact of the economics of the time on composers of the past and why they made the decisions they made, why they took the commissions they took, and really how money affected their lives in the same way that you know, we're all trying to figure out today. So we've kind of been separated on those projects, but this was really fun because it brought us together to think, how do we share, you know, as I said, like the stuff that we love about these people with audiences of all ages? Yeah. Something else I'm very curious about is when you did all this research on these composers, you're probably also getting a look into like what the music industry was like in those days. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, if there are key distinctions that stick out when you look at the music industry back then and how it has evolved to what it is now, or if there are some things that still persist, you know, like you had explained how money was impacting composers and musicians back then just the way it is now. Are there any things that kind of come to the surface for you in terms of insights or takeaways when you look at how the music industry has evolved and how some of it may be just the same that it was, you know, thousands of years ago. I think we're living in a time that is very exciting. 
in that we have access to music from all over the world at our fingertips through, you know, various online streaming platforms, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, something else. That's an incredible gift that we have today. And I love that as like a very hungry musician who loves to listen to stuff from all over and sort of, you know, incorporate it into my work, whether subconsciously or consciously, (laughs) is just like, like, what a privilege that we have today. And the fact that we can call up musicians in other countries and I can say, hey, I want to understand more about what playing a Japanese shakuhachi is like. I don't play that, but I want to learn how to imitate that on my flute. And and how do I do that? Like, can you give me a lesson? Can we talk about that with someone who's an expert in that? And we can do it over Zoom. Like, that's so cool. I can't imagine, you know, what someone like Bach would have done if that were possible. I mean, he traveled very little in his life. He stayed within a very small radius. But, you know, despite that, you know, just like any of us, we're able to create the most incredible pieces of work. And that's also really amazing. But something that was incredibly different about his time and, and about most of Cuban history is that if you wanted music, you had to make it. Or you had to have enough resources to be able to have someone make it for you. And that is, I think, a concept that is very strange to us today because music is free and at our fingertips. And that's changed even in our lifetime significantly. But I think that would be a very bizarre and shocking concept to a lot of the people in this book, actually most people in human history. And I think it would be really exciting for us to have access to everything the way we do today, but also get back to that shared community-making experience that live music gives us together, especially amateur music-making. If you're at home and the only way to have music is to, you know, get a guitar or sing a cappella together, you know, we don't have that in the same way that I think we've had throughout our sort of cultural history. And so that's a huge difference. And I'd be really excited to see that come back even more. When you were describing just how foreign it would be for us to not have access to all this music. And then like, you know, back then, if you wanted music, you had to make it. That brought up a couple of reflections in my mind of conversations that I've had with podcast guests. And I've asked them, what was it like being drawn to making music? And a few of those answers have been, well, you know, it hit me when I realized that people were actually making this music that I was listening to. And like, this was a thing (laughs) that people did. It wasn't just part of like just wake up and there's music available and it's just some unknown source that's creating all of it. And so it it is curious to think about how much more music would be appreciated if it weren't so readily available. And I think that's probably why I gear my music listening preference to, to live. You know, I listen to certainly a lot of recorded music as much as anyone else, but I go to three or four shows a week because there's just nothing like that live experience. And, you know, I'm a huge bluegrass fan and bluegrass and jazz is is the same way. You know, the collaborative nature that the artists have on stage and in jazz, it's usually impromptu. And in bluegrass, it's the same kind of way. And soon I'll be putting a podcast out on the bluegrass scene in Wisconsin 
artists are always jumping up on stage with each other, pulling people out of the crowd. It's just amazing. To, you never know what's going to happen when you're at a bluegrass or a jazz show. And it's, it's always kind of like you, you just wait and see. And I, I think so <laughs> it's a big reason why I appreciate the experience of live music so much. And it points exactly to what you're talking about. Music is an experience. And I think in some ways, because it's been so readily available, maybe that experience has been diluted in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think ultimately is the impact of music on the world? I mean, that's a really big question. So feel free to summarize as best as you can. But like, what do you think music does for you and, and, and does for everybody else in the world? That's so individual. And I think everybody would answer that differently. It has been part of human civilization from the beginning communication language is music but i think it can also speak to things that we don't have words for it can be catharsis it can be rageful it can be comforting you know when you just listen to a piece of music and it brings something out you like i didn't even know i needed that and i don't have words to express that but it just ugh. Um, <laughs> i don't have the words I think it can really be whatever you need it to be. And that is, it's pretty powerful. It can be a ritual. It can be a tool for communication, for education. I think it kind of has no limits, which is why it's so integrally a part of us. Even just look at nature. You hear, you know, bird calls. And like it's just there's music all around us, whether we call it that or not. We're surrounded by it from the wind in the trees to like water rushing over rocks. Like it's all music. It's sound and what it does for us, whether it calms us down or, you know, lights us up, whatever it is. Can I ask you to zoom in on one particular music experience in your career and what it meant to you? in that moment and what you think it meant for the other people. And that particular experience that I want to zoom in on is when you were featured alongside Paul Simon and Yo-Yo Ma for the 9-11 ceremony and you played Amazing Grace. So in that moment, what did music mean and what, what do you feel like that meant to the, the people who were there and the country and the state of being that we were in at that time? Yeah, that was a very, very meaningful performance and musical experience for me. This was at the 10th anniversary of 9-11 at the ceremony that happens at Ground Zero with all of the families and firefighters and police people who were part of everything that happened on that day. And it's where they read all of the names of the people we lost on that day and do these moments of silence for when the planes hit the buildings and when the buildings fell. And so it is a very, very emotionally charged day where you're thinking about the impact of all of this on our world, as well as the impact that this had on all of these families who you are there to play music in memory of, of their loved ones. I just felt very, very honored to be asked to be there. And that was, it was, sorry, I'm having a hard time articulating it into words because 
being there is it was a mixture of emotions because it's a performance and you're up at 5 a.m. to go down there. You're <laughs> I was the only person who had been, I think, cleared to be on stage with four presidents right before I played that. And as I walked on stage, the Secret Service agent said, you've got four snipers on you, so don't make any sudden movements. That's terrifying. In addition to just the overwhelming emotion that I think all of us have about that day, but then the overwhelming emotion of, of seeing all of, of the families there mourning their loved ones. So I, in so many ways, had to turn off my emotions and just say, okay, I need to hit my marks. This is being broadcast internationally. I'm playing Amazing Grace, one of the most important pieces of music to so many people. And I need to make sure I play the right notes. So I was just focused on my scale of degrees, like five, one, three, two, one, three, two, one, <laughs> like going through my head. But also the challenge of that was that they asked me to have three different versions of Amazing Grace ready to go. They asked me about, I think like maybe 18 hours beforehand, they told me that I'd be playing it. And then they said, we need to, you to have three different versions, one that's a minute long, one that's a minute and a half, and one that's two minutes long, because you have to finish right before one of the moments of silence. And how much time you'll have will be dependent on how quickly the speakers who are sharing the names of the people who are lost get through the names that they're reading, and everybody has a different cadence. And so we won't know until you start playing how much time you have. And you need to make sure that we're like done by when the bell needs to be rung. And the producer will be there and she'll be telling you like, you got to cut off in like 10 seconds, you know, as you're going. So it was just like, focus, focus, focus. Don't let the emotions get in the way for that particular moment. But for me, it was later in the day where I had and, and I have this experience every time I'm invited to play that event is when I'm just playing background music as they're reading the names. They really like to have live music being played because it supports that moment so, so beautifully. And just locking eyes with some family members who the music impacted in a way that allowed them to grieve for their lost ones, to remember them, to celebrate them. And you can kind of see that in the moment. And it's not about me. It's not about my instrument. It's about that human connection and that I didn't even know I was giving this sort of pathway for them to access that part of their grieving. And that to me is like, that's why we play music. I feel so fortunate to get to play that event because it reminds me like what the important moments are in our sort of shared community and that morning and how music can be such a pivotal part of that. So, yeah. yeah. Amy, thank you for sharing that experience. That was, yes. <laughs> sounds like a, it was a lot, but I'm sure an experience that you're grateful to have had. The, yes. And, and now, I mean, your performance is, is etched in history. And yeah, no, I'm very, very grateful for just being able to be part of the m memorial. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk about the music itself. You shared a song that listeners will hear after this mm -hmm. interview, a Bach song. 
Could you talk about like that song, what that song means to you? Just dump the bucket on that song and, and how that song is a great introduction to those who, who are not familiar with your music. Sure. So this song is called the G Major Prelude, and it's off an album that I made with a group called Ruckus called Fly the Coop. And on this album, we are playing only Bach, all Bach. We call them Bach preludes and sonatas. But they're played in a way that you maybe probably haven't heard before. This is very similar to what you're seeing about, you know, these bluegrass groups or jazz groups where you don't know who's going to come up in the audience. And there's always something new and fun that's about to happen. And that really was the way that music was back in the day of Johann Sebastian Bach. Improvisation was a huge part of his music. He was an incredible improviser himself. And the way that he wrote a lot of his music is in a style called continuo writing, which is essentially like a jazz lead sheet. You have the melody and then you have chord symbols and bass notes. And so he wrote a bunch of flute sonatas that are flute and continuo sonatas. So flute playing the melody and then chord changes underneath that would usually, we call it, they'd be realized. So to realize the, the figures, what we call the chord symbols, they'd be realized by a harpsichordist. And maybe there'd be a cellist who'd be playing the bass line as well. But mostly it would just be a keyboard player. But because we love to do wild and fun things, we said, what happens if instead of just a harpsichordist, we have a continual band of six players, someone playing harpsichord and organ, someone playing double bass, someone playing cello, someone playing bassoon, someone playing Baroque guitar, and someone playing theorbo, which is another type of Baroque guitar that's very, very tall and kind of looks like a giraffe. And you might hear all of these low instruments. They're all bass instruments in Baroque music in a bigger ensemble. But it would be quite comical, I think, to Johann Sebastian Bach to imagine these flute sonatas played with one single flute, you know, Baroque flute is not a loud instrument, and six massive bass instruments. But for us, that was like the really fun challenge. So we took these sonatas and we reorchestrated them, rearranged them to fit all of these forces. And a lot of the times when we tour this program, what that means is that my colleagues, especially my keyboard and guitar colleagues, are improvising based on these chord symbols the whole time. So no two concerts are the same. There's always something fun. You know, we're trying to like poke at each other and sort of challenge each other in the moment, which is really great. And, you know, we've invited up random guests as well because anyone can join in on this fun, which is really cool. But we've got these three big sonatas on the album that sort of feature that. But we wanted to break that up with some pieces of music that Bach wrote as part of a collection, originally just for solo keyboard, but instead arranged them for this crazy big band of seven Baroque instruments. And these pieces are from his collection called The Well-Tempered Clavier, which is a book of preludes and fugues that he wrote as, you know, it was a little bit of a job audition, a little bit of a calling card, a little bit of a show-off, like, I'm, I'm this awesome kind of vibe where at the time it was very rare that you played in all of the 24 keys, 12 major, 12 minor keys of the circle of fifths. At that time, the instruments really struggle, you know, once you go past like four flats, four sharps, really gnarly. I mean, that's because we didn't use equal temperament back then where you take all 12 pitches of the scale 
Now we take an octave and you divide it into 12 equal parts. So like on the piano, every single note is the exact same distance apart. Every note is 100 cents apart. But Bach would never have let that happen because he would have said, oh my gosh, yes, you can go into every key, but it means that you sacrifice what we call pure intervals or intervals that come from the harmonic overtone series, which are what is present in physics, in nature. And it's what our ears hear as like perfectly, beautifully in tune and like this most golden halo kind of way. And so Bach devised this crazy tuning scheme where he said, I'm going to come up with a way to tune the harpsichord so that it can work in every single key. And in C major, it's going to be the most beautiful C major you have ever heard. Very different to how you would hear it on the piano. And I think folks will probably know his pretty iconic C major prelude, um, which I will sing very poorly, but you kind of get the idea. <laughs> but uh, I don't have a piano right here. But that would have been this like halo glow of pure intervals. And then as he descended into all of these different keys, he would either hide the intervals that were a little crunchier or accentuate them as like, whoa, isn't this crazy and cool? And that was all built into what he wrote. And the fact that he went into all 24 keys would have been like totally such a very impressive feat for anybody looking to hire him. So it worked. And this piece, the G major prelude, is from the Well-Tempered Clavier. So originally for solo harpsichord, but we've blown it into this super fun kind of party piece that we play at the beginning and often the end of all of our shows as a way to just sort of like let our audiences know like this is not going to be like your grandfather's Bach. This is going to be something different, something fun. And we are going to hopefully, you know, give you a different experience and hope that you leave smiling and dancing. Because for us, the most important thing is like groove. Music is all about like movement, whether it's internal or external. So our goal is to is to make you move. <laughs> That's awesome. I am very eager to hear from our listeners when they hear your version of, of this song <laughs> and, and, and the rest of the album for that matter too. As we're kind of like winding down here, I always find it interesting to ask artists what success means to them. And you know, you get a, a myriad of answers. And so I'm curious, like what comes up for you when you when you reflect on your career and where you are right now? I think so many musicians end up having to be entrepreneurs. And so much of success, air quote, success is luck, right? Being the right place, right time with the right skill set and just things working out. For me, I get to reevaluate what I want to be every day because I'm my own boss. I'm like, that's amazing and also terrifying because it means that whatever my concept of success is, is self-defined. Um, and, you know, I need to be okay when something that doesn't go the way that I think it does. But because I think of that entrepreneurial aspect of it, it's about the pivot and like, okay, well, that didn't quite go the way that I want, but actually this other thing came out of it and that's really cool. Or, hey, that release of that didn't blow up the way that I thought. 
and you kind of feel like defeated in the moment. But then five years later, it's actually become one of the things that sustains your career. I think it's really about being open to different things that come your way and not letting one version of success define you. For me, if I can have the opportunity to pursue music and projects that really interest me and that I can perform in in a way that feels very authentic, then that is success. And on top of that, if I get to play with people who challenge me and make me better, like, oh my gosh, what could you possibly ask for? Because I think for any musician, that sort of continual hope to grow and learn more is going to be part of your life. I mean, musicians, you never stop learning because there's always more music to learn about. And it can be overwhelming sometimes, but also so cool that there's always more to learn about and you can always get better in whatever aspect of it excites you. Yeah, beautiful. That was beautifully said. So what is on the horizon, Emmy? You know, you said you have a busy travel schedule coming up, lots of performances, but are there other projects that you're kind of eyeing up? Are there more books, more yeah, podcast series? Is your music going to be featured on any more HBO shows? I know you you had some kind of collaboration there with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. What are you looking forward to? And what do we have to look forward to coming from Emmy? So right now I am completely blinders focused on getting ready for a recording session that I have coming up later in July with Ruckus. We are recording a new album of music that is sort of a follow-up to our album of Bach, Fly the Coop. And that is going to be called Microcosms. And it is the music of two composers who are not in this book. Ligeti and Telemann, two different composers from very different time periods, one from the 1700s, one from the 1900s, and who wrote very different music. Ligeti wrote a lot of the music that was used in the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. So a lot of folks know his music from that. Telemann was more popular than Bach was during his lifetime, but, you know, has sort of faded a little bit in popularity since then, but wrote so much music. And so we are taking a set of 12 pieces by Telemann for solo flute and adding a bunch of crazy stuff for our big band. And then we're taking a set of 12 piano pieces written by Ligeti and reorchestrating that for all of us as well. So it's really fun to look at you know, what people would consider more contemporary music, but play them on Baroque instruments and be like totally cool and have fun with that and like bring that same improvisational and explorational attitude that we've learned from doing Baroque performance practice to more contemporary music, which is super exciting. So that's the big thing that I'm focused on right now. And then in terms of this book, I'm actually super excited about working with WQXR, which is a radio station in New York, to bring this to their radio station as programming for young listeners. So about to embark on that as well. Oh, that's very cool. Such an exciting time ahead of you, Emmy. Yeah. (laughs) I always ask our guests the same question to end our conversations. And that question is, for those listeners who are not familiar with you, and maybe even some of those who are, what is the most important thing that you want them to know about Emmy Ferguson? To trust me. (laughs) Can you say more? Just that, I mean, I follow things that I'm curious about. 
all about curiosity and that whatever I'm going to be interested or excited about, you might not love or like, but it will be interesting. Whatever piece I choose to play, whatever recording I make, whatever path I go down, hopefully will open up a different way to understand it, even if that's like hating it. <laughs> totally fine with that, but to trust me that it'll be a cool journey. Oh, that's wonderful. Gosh, <laughs> it's such a pleasure to meet you, Emmy. And Likewise. To talk with you about your world and your perspective on music and the classical genre. And you are a treasure trove of information, my friend. Oh, I am so you. eager to dive into the book and listen even more to some of your music. I, I think I might be incorporating some of your music into my runs. Um, Amazing. It'll be good run music because it's like very peppy and... Yeah, and you're now the second artist that we've interviewed from Trope, Emil Pandolfi being the first. Yes, fantastic. And Emil was such a treat to talk to and meet. Like, I don't know if two of you know each other. We don't know each other, but we share sort of a educational lineage and legacy. So I've been a, an admirer of his for a very long time. Yeah, just a, a delightful man for sure. And really great life perspective too. He had a really, really enlightening answer for the, the question of what does success mean to you? Oh, I, I yeah. oh, check and, it out. I can't believe yeah. it. <laughs> it's interesting conversation for sure. But I brought him up because I also incorporated his music into my running playlist. And he's just a beautiful pianist. It's wonderful. So yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. I could talk to you all day long. But <laughs> you've got a recording session to prepare for. But Emmy, this has just been a delight. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to know that you exist in the world and you're sharing all of this music education and music history with people who haven't maybe been exposed to it before. And I think that at least from this conversation, my perspective on classical music has changed and I can't wait to uh, to change it even more with your help. Well, thank you. And I, I will say I feel very lucky for all the partners that I have and realizing the passion projects that I have. And one of those that's been very, very important to me is not so far from you in Wisconsin called Frankly Music, which is this amazing series in Milwaukee run by the violinist Frank Almond. And he's had me out several times to develop these wacky programs that no one else would take a risk on. We did one in March that combined the music of Franz Schubert, Woody Guthrie, Harry Burley and more. It was super fun. And only Frank would let me run wild that way and said, like, yeah, let's let's do it. So I feel such uh, kinship with the audiences of Wisconsin for welcoming me and welcoming these fun mixtures of different types of music that that I love. So. Thank you to everyone in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, you know, we're people lovers here. We, we love all kinds of people and all kinds of music. So be sure to let us know when you're coming back this way. And I will. we'll help, uh, help people get out to, to see you. It would be a delight to meet you in person, Emmy. Likewise. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>